Let's talk about making an entrance, because it seems like that's what you do if you can. I mean, if you're the CEO, you've got your own parking spot, you know, you pull up in a nice car. And that stuff is sort of important for maintaining your power. Like if you're a celebrity, you show up with an entourage and bodyguards and everyone at the hotel knows to have everything just the way you want it before you show up. And then they know, hey, there's someone in the house. Right. And if you're even bigger than that, let's say you're the president, you've got Secret Service already mapping the whole place out and putting up barricades. All kinds of dignitaries meet you at the airport and the band is there playing your song. Yeah. So it seems like the more powerful you are, the more dramatic your entrance is and needs to be, and the more you set everything up just the way you want it. Yeah, and imagine how far it could go. Think if you weren't just the head of a country, but something even bigger, mm. like the head of, I don't know, a whole planet or a solar system, or what if, what if you were the head of everything? You mean God? Just think if God visited Earth. Think mm. of the magnitude of that event. All the mm. world leaders would be out there. Every country would offer the absolute best of what it had. And what would it look like? God would probably come down in some invincible megasphere of energy or some super powerful form on top of the highest mountain. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, well, we don't know the specifics. We do know it would be big. The thing we could be totally sure about is that it wouldn't be small. He wouldn't come as, let's say, a helpless baby in an animal shed in a tiny little town. Of course not, right? I mean, what would be the point of doing that with all the options in the world? Why would you make your entrance in such a counterintuitive, powerless way? Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Tonight we're going to be looking at why Jesus came to earth as a baby. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host. And with me as always is Swedenborg scholar Dr. Jonathan Rose. Hey Curtis. Thanks so much for coming. And I want to start out by setting some boundaries here. Okay. I want to tell you this show that we're not doing. Okay. We're not doing a show about why did God want to be a human being? Like what, what's the point of the incarnation? Mm. Because we already did a show about that. It's called oh, Why Jesus Was right. Born. It was last Christmas. Right. But we're, we're looking at why did God want to do it in this particular way? Like you're God, so why did you want to go through not just coming to earth, but coming to earth in the way that everybody else does, mm. as a teeny little baby, getting born, growing having to learn and walk and these sorts of things, aren't, aren't those a little below the, the dignity of God? Why do it like that? You know what I mean? Yeah, right, right. I, I had not thought about it until I was translating True Christianity and came across this passage that that brought that up, that, well, what if there were other options, you know, rather than just being born, being helpless and yeah. growing up? We grow so slowly and our development is, is so gradual and seems to go through these sort of awkward phases sometimes. And yeah. So like r- really, was that the way to, to do it? Wasn't there a, a better way? And I, li- I love the way Swedenborg puts it. So let's let's hear how he says it here. This is True Christianity 90. He says, People who do not know that the divine omnipotence follows and works according to the divine design might wonder why God did not instantly take on a human manifestation without going through life stages. Mm. They might wonder why he did not create or assemble a body for himself, from substances from all four directions of the world. 
If he had, he could have presented himself as a human god before the Jewish people, and in fact, before the entire world. Because when there's all this problem of, wait, are you, who are you? Are you God? Are you Jesus? You do this, you wipe Boom. out that problem there's right no, away. No, no problem. Or if he had especially wanted to go through the birth process, and I know you get a kick out of that line, like, you're, you're God, and you're like, no, it's on, it's on my bucket list. I gotta, right. I gotta get right. born like a person. Why did he not pour his whole divinity into that embryo, uh-huh. or else into himself as a baby? Mm. Or right after he was born, why did he not expand himself to the size of an adult, which I just think is a funny image, and immediately start speaking divine wisdom? People who think of divine omnipotence without thinking of the divine design are capable of conceiving and giving birth to these thoughts and others like them. Mm. And I find that those are the kind of thoughts that, yeah, you would think, wait, if you're God, you could choose any way to do it. That's right. Why are you going to do it in the same ridiculous way Mm. that, that we all do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so it really seems to say that, oh no, this is this is not just some random uh, effect of evolution that we go through what we go through. There's a pattern here that there's a there's a building, there's an order to it and a sequence, and that that was exactly the right way for him to to do this. yeah, it kind of it kind of brings some like mystical power to the whole process we go through of mm-hmm. being a baby and getting bigger by stages because you'd think, well, this is just how you got to do it biologically but if, if god with every tool at his disposal that's is like, right no i want to do the same thing there's got to be some magic in there and that's we're right. going to look into this magic using swedenborg and the symbolism in the new testament story that we're all so familiar with because swedenborg says there are clues about the whole process in there and we as a bonus we we got access to these cool world nativities you know cultures from all over the world uh depicting the christmas the major nice. scene in different ways so we'll be using those as our reference point as we unlock the hidden mysteries of the process of the divine getting born as a little baby. We're start in part Let's one. Let's do it. When we think about God and absolutes, we'll think of things like God is love itself. Or if you follow Swedenborg at all, you think of God is wisdom itself. That somehow God embodies these really desirable qualities. But did you know that Swedenborg claims that also God is order itself, which doesn't sound quite as warm and fuzzy. It doesn't sound like something that you would usually associate with a divine being. But Swedenborg asserts that this quality of God that is the essence of order is just as important. And if you look at this, so what what would the order in God be? Swedenborg says at a, at a sort of high vantage point, it's what he calls the divine design that there is this order running through everything in creation that you could call the divine design. So what would that be? It's, it's, is it like a plan that God made? It's actually more intimately united to God than that. The Swedenborg actually says that God is not just following the plan, but God is the divine design. So this is crucial to understanding why God came to earth as a baby, because God is not just this thing that doesn't have any structure. God has this order within him that he follows. And the divine design might seem like, how could you ever grasp what that is, or or could you even get a flavor of it? But Swedenborg says that, in general, the divine design is moving towards the highest goals and doing so in the most orderly and effective way. Those are the hallmarks of the divine design. And Swedenborg talks about this in True Christianity 89. He says, in the process of taking on a human manifestation, God followed his own divine design. Now, because God came down and because he is the design, there was no other way for him to become an actual human being. 
than to be conceived, to be carried in the womb, to be born, to be brought up, and to acquire more and more knowledge so as to become intelligent and wise. So in a way, this was God didn't have all these options, because to do things in the best, smartest way, you've got to do it like this. Therefore, in his human manifestation, he was an infant like any infant, and a child like any child, and so on with just one difference. He completed the process more quickly, more fully, and more perfectly than the rest of us do. So there's some distinction, but not as much distinction as you'd think there would be between the divine origin of everything and and the rest of us finite beings, because you've got God coming to do this really important mission in the world, but God comes in a form that, that looks like this. Just like every little helpless human being starts not even able to lift their own head, this is the way that God did it. And it wasn't just, oh, well, this will be fun, or, well, you guys all go through it, I might as well. This was actually in the divine design. This was the most effective way to accomplish this giant, you know, divine level goal was, was through coming in this helpless little cute form. And not only that, it wasn't just that God came as a baby, but God did the whole progression as we go through our stages of babyhood and being able to eventually hold the head and crawl and all that, because these stages, why, why go through these stages? They were forming a path for us. We all take this same journey at the same time, and God was, from top to bottom, designing this um, route that we could follow to our own salvation. So he had to do the same things that we did. And Swedenborg talks again in TC 89, the Lord's life followed this path because the divine design is for people to prepare themselves to accept God. And as they prepare themselves, God enters them as if he were coming into his own dwelling and his own home. The, pre- the preparation entails developing a concept of God and of the spiritual things related to the church, that is, developing intelligence and wisdom. It is a law of the divine design that the closer and closer we come to God, which is something we have to do as if we were completely on our own, the closer and closer God comes to us. So you're starting to get particular laws of the divine design. And notice how they focus on this higher goal of uniting the divine to us, because the more that that happens, the happier we can be, which is the point of God's plan. When we meet, God forms a partnership with us. And this partnership is key. This is why God could have just wiped the slate totally clean, but the whole point of coming to earth is to partner with us as we were in ways we could accept them. So this partnership is the reason for all these steps. That's the method through which the divine design had to operate. The Lord followed this design even to the point of union with his Father. And we don't have time to get into the whole thing now, but we did a program called How to Understand the Trinity, which Swedenborg has um, his specific take on what the whole Father, Son, Holy Spirit thing means. But suffice to say, that program there, Jesus, the human manifestation, connecting to the Father, is run in the same way that all of us connect to God. So in all of this, he is forging this pathway, and he had to do it through living the same kind of ways that we do. So not, you think of Jesus just as a little baby, we see that in the manger, but Jesus got bigger. Jesus became a toddler. And it's fascinating to think about the Lord's body developing, just like ours do, the little teeth getting ready and coming in, and that he had to go through all the minutia of the human experience. But think about the mind developing as well. He didn't just start all knowing and all seeing. He had to learn, like, oh, what does this taste like when I put it in my mouth? It's the same kind of stuff we do, Swedenborg says, with, you know, an accelerated pace and more fully and perfect, but going through this same 
pattern of life that we did. So he's going through a process, and the point of the process, of course, in fitting with a divine design, is to lead to the best possible good for the entire human race. And we actually get insight into that process through the text of the New Testament. Particularly, we're going to look hard at Luke 2, verses 7, which is a really famous Christmas verse, because in this pivotal verse, there's like this fulfilling of all these Old Testament scriptures prophesying the Messiah and how he was going to show up, but also it's the beginning of this new relationship of God with humanity, and we're going to, from this, pick out a lot of the elements and symbols that we'll be unpacking to figure out just what is God trying to do in this partnership with us, and and how do we participate. So I've hyped it up enough. I'm sure it's going to live up to it. Here's Luke 2.7. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So you have four elements introduced there. The Jesus, the swaddling clothes, the manger, the inn, and it's all descri- describing this new relationship with humanity that God is trying to affect and how that was going to come to pass. If you think about relationships, they have to have effort from both sides or they're not going to be a relationship for very long. Um, and it's all these details that are describing sort of how both sides interface with each other. God always wants to connect with us. This is the nature of love, right? God is wanting to, and because he knows that the more we're connected to him, the happier we get. That's the point. That's just what God is. That's the beating heart of God, is this desire to take us in our little lives and make us happier and happier and happier. But what about us? Do we always want to connect with God? And on the surface, you might say, well, if God's going to hook me up with everything that's cool, of course I do. But in practice, we may or may we may have some barriers to entry for God, and it has to do with how we think about life and what we're really willing to open our minds to. And actually, there's a picture of this in this first element, which is the inn that they tried to get into. So Mary and Joseph first were looking to spend the night at the inn, but they couldn't get in. If they, if they had gotten in in the beginning, that's where Jesus would have been born. Swedenborg says that's symbolic, no room in the inn, that is actually standing for the mindset of the day, specifically the religious mindset that was external, it was focused on worldly power, didn't really have room for what Jesus stood for, which was this love of your fellow human beings. And it's not just some a group of religious leaders in history that weren't ready. We too, if we if we don't have any room in the part of our mind that allows for thought, then how are we going to be taught the new way to look at life? When are we so sure about what's going on in life and, and who's wrong and who's, who's doing something wrong that we can't let in this new baby? Right? So we have to have this room in our inn in order to accept it. So in this story, the, there wasn't the room. The people weren't interested in bringing mutual love into life. So there was this other place that was designated where, okay, actually, you can't start the baby Lord in there. Where's this other place? So these are all little parts of our lives that allow for this partnership to begin. So it's a description both of history and, uh, and of what we're going through now. So from everything you just said, it's like this humble and vulnerable beginning for Jesus just wasn't an accident. It wasn't random. No. And every detail, even in the story and the setting around it, was was purposeful and according to this divine design that we've been mm. talking about. And an aspect of this, to my mind, is that <clears throat> what Jesus was doing was providing the possibility of salvation, regeneration, but still maintaining free will. 
and free will means that we have a choice and a part to play. I think some people think it's, it was sort of automatic or it was done for us or yeah. something like that, but but there's actually an opt-in part of it. The whole thing emanates free will. Because he's born in such humble setting, don't people say, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Or, right. So it, it, if he was born like at the top of the pinnacle of the temple, miraculously, you'd have to say, okay, well, this is definitely the Messiah. But the whole time through Jesus' life, everyone's trying to figure out, who is he? Who is he? And it's got to be cool. the same in our lives. Like This is a, this is something feels good. Is this God? You know, what is this? Like I, I, can, I can definitely get like, where's God? Where's God? But there's other things like, are we talking right now? You know, right? He went super low key. I mean, you you really couldn't, right? You know, yeah. it, it was down at the other end. Of, yeah, that's right. Where where it's it's not because doesn't it say in Isaiah fifty three something like that? He he had no beauty that we should behold him. You know, it wasn't sure. like he was so automatically impressive that you'd buy in. You had to kind of work your way up to it. I that's think. That's right. You know? and, and God is always playing chess it seems like because he's not just doing one move which is the humble thing but mm. also placing all these things in the story because they communicate about the mindset that we can learn from the story right so we looked at the inn and how right. that's a picture of this resistant mindset but the other things ah. in the story can actually be a picture of a receptive mindset yeah yeah so let's look at some of those symbols in part two So in the details of the story, what elements represent the receptive mindset that we need to have in order to embrace the Lord, this new new vision that's born into our lives? Uh, for one thing, if you're going to be born as a human helpless baby, you really need a mother. And Mary is such a central figure in this story. So what exactly does Mary mean? We see just from the New Testament story that she was someone who had humility, was willing to take part in a process that she didn't fully understand. When the angel talked to her about it, she had questions and she didn't understand, but she was amazingly willing to just go along with the program. And that's like a quality in us where we're we don't know where this journey is going to take us when the Lord comes into our lives. We, we don't know what's coming up next. But if we have that basic attitude of, yes, let it be to me as you wish. You know, I'll go along with your will on this one. So that's a basic element of a receptive mindset. Another quality of Mary, of course, is that she's a loving mother and she cares for and protects the infant. We see these beautiful images of how she's caring, and that's an attitude that is so receptive to the Lord, to have this love for what is innocent, for what needs protecting, what is helpless, and so on, is something that the Lord can flow into. And so that was such an important thing, such an important element in the story, to have Mary be a loving mother in that way, dedicated and staying with it, even when they had to leave town and everything. Uh, she stays with the process and takes care of the baby no matter what. Another symbolic element that Swedenborg talks about is the fact that Jesus was laid in a manger. What an odd little detail. We have so few details in a way of the Christmas story, and yet one is this idea of this object from which animals would eat. We don't know exactly what this was like, a crib or a manger or something, but the root meaning of the Greek word it has to do with eating. It was a place for animals to eat. Such an odd 
detail. What does that mean? Let's look at this quotation from Swedenborg about this. The manger where the shepherds found the infant Lord symbolized spiritual nourishment because horses, which get their nourishment from mangers, symbolize things having to do with the understanding. So at its root, I think what this is talking about is that there's an attitude in us that is teachable. That's the shortest way I can think of to put it, that we're open to instruction. We were hungry for that information, and the animal has to do with a positive attitude. So we, we want to learn, and we're hungry to learn, and that's why the Lord was born in a manger, which would otherwise be such a random little point. Uh, what would that mean? And uh, Swedenborg also talks about the fact that this was a humble setting and why it was. Have a look at this quote from Revelation Explained, number 706. If it had pleased the Lord, he might have been born in the most splendid palace and been laid in a bed adorned with precious stones. But this would have been among such as were in no doctrine of truth and there would have been no heavenly representation. It's always about the representation. Is there an inner meaning to it? He is also said to have been wrapped in swaddling clothes because swaddling clothes signify primary truths, which are truths of innocence and also truths of divine love. So, Part of this depiction was to convey the fact that when we're in a state of humility, then we are open to what the Lord wants to bring into our lives. The opposite of that being, uh, uh, you know, a, a sort of a deal breaker. In other words, if we have so much pride, we already know all the answers and uh, we're on top of the world, you know, then we're not very open to that input. But it's when we have that humble heart we're in that humble setting, then it's like from that attitude of humility, the Lord can flow into that. So these are elements of a receptive mindset. And let's think about when that news was announced. Who were those people? Who were the early adopters? Who were the first people who heard this information? Wasn't it these shepherds? It wasn't world leaders. It wasn't religious, you know, figures uh, in the hierarchy. It was shepherds who were out in the fields. What does that mean? Let's listen to this. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And so you notice at the end of that quote that it talks about the fact that this will be a sign to you. Like the, even the literal meaning of the text is kind of begging this to be read in a deeper way, that the sign will involve these swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And the news wouldn't be coming to people who would resist it. Uh, people who already had a stake in the status quo 
might be resistant. The the worldly leaders, the church leaders uh, might be resistant to the message, but the shepherds were open to it. And what the shepherds mean are people who are doing good works. Think about that situation. Everybody else was asleep, you know, in their homes and so forth. Only the shepherds were out there working and they were awake, or at least some of them were awake in the midnight watch uh, to, to take care of the sheep and make sure nothing bad happens to them. That, again, that protective attitude, a little bit like Mary, uh, is something that is receptive. In other words, there's something about just getting on with the business of life, doing what needs to be done, taking care of other people. And sheep, again, like the child, are an an image, lambs and so on, an image of innocence, helplessness. Sheep need a lot of protecting and and care in order to feel safe and and calm. Uh, this, This is important when you're taking care of sheep. And so the shepherds are protectors, they're watchful, they're working. And this is a symbol of the fact that when we have that attitude in our lives, it's the part of us, let's say, that is doing that work, that's caring for others. Uh, This is a part that's responsive to what the Lord has to say. It's not our ego, it's not our baggage or whatever. It's the part of us that is, oh, here, let me help you with that. Set all that aside for a second and just, oh, you need some help. Uh, That's the spirit of those shepherds. And so they are a humble desire. Again, humility in all these images. Humility is so central to all this. It's a humble desire to put that goodness into action. That's fascinating. Just to think about each of the details having some kind of, not just meaning, but teaching points for us. And I, I'm not trying to nitpick at all, but you met, Swedenborg mentioned horses, and that it was important, the horses there. Does that ever mention horses specifically in the New Testament? The New Testament doesn't, as far as I know, get into any animals that were in that stable. You see them in those representations and things. Yeah. But, but uh, it doesn't mention specifics one way or the other. The only connection is that, obviously, that manger or that trough, it was like something for feeding. The the root yeah. word has something to do with eating. Well, all those nativities have animals in them of different kinds, but I guess people just think something's eating that hay. That's right. Yeah. And the Bible does, of course, mention horses elsewhere, and if it was an inn for travelers, it might make sense that there were horses. Uh, they might also, though, have been, you know, mules or donkeys or, wh- or whatever, but animals for travelers. But there's also some question as to whether that inn, it's a very simple Greek word, and there's a different word for inn that's in the story of the Good Samaritan, a uh, okay. different word in Luke, whereas here... There's a, there's a different word. So some people have wondered, does it just mean guest room? Did they have family there? But there was no room in the guest room, so they had to sleep where the animals were, either in the downstairs or out in a courtyard type of thing. A lot of people have debated about what happened there. Yeah, it seems to me like the meaning would be intact regardless. Like whether you technically call it an in, the function of the space is the same. This is the subspace that wasn't even supposed to be initially the stay-in space. And whether it's a horse or a donkey, or we, we saw in one of our mangers a zebra, those are... Think about those animals. I mean, they're, they're genetically related. There's correspondences have to signify things. But also that, that Swedenborg says all different kinds of animals correspond to different parts of the mind. So the horses yeah. are one part of us that's fed. Oxen would be another part. That's right. And they're all useful animals that represent good 
emotions and things like you know yeah uh, and i don't know things of joy or delight or things like that yeah it's a a little bit of a tangent but i love just going over the details and 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 how every little part that you think is just to move the narrative along has meaning i mean swedenborg even seemed to indicate that there was meaning to the clothes that that jesus was wearing so few details mentioned in the story that the few that he does mention it's got to be Meaningful, you know, yeah, why, well, why mention those particular clothes that they would exactly. wrap the newborns in so that they feel all sort of tight and comfortable? Yeah, and, and how, how did that make the cut? And Swedenborg actually, in a personal letter that he was writing, he said that in the word there is an internal or spiritual sense, and its external or natural sense as a precious stone in its matrix, or as a beautiful infant and it's swaddling clothes. And of course, he, hmm. he knew the reference th- that he was making there. So something about this, the, the, uh, the, the spiritual meaning that was coming to light, you know, through the coming of Right, Jesus. and it kind of hints that this part of the Word made flesh, you know, Jesus is referred to in John as the Word made flesh. And, I know, yeah. And isn't it like that that would be wrapped in this literal meaning of these clothes? Because Swedenborg often says that cloth and clothing represents truth of various different kinds. So right. this would be the, the truth of the literal sense of Scripture. And part of what makes me think of is that there's various indications in the New Testament that Jesus read Scripture a lot. He says a lot to people, doesn't he? Haven't you read the Scripture? Like this <laughs> and that. Like he's chiding even the yeah. experts in Scripture. Yeah. He say, haven't you read that Scripture? Don't, don't you know? And, and even when he was 12, he was in the temple and he seemed to know the Scriptures very well. So it seems meaningful that he was wrapped wrapped in that cloth of the uh, swaddling cloth. And I'm thinking about, we're talking about this historical story of Jesus who came and did these things and in this setting. Is that sort of like the clothes? Because the Mm -hmm. thing that was happening spiritually from this is something that not just happened in history, but can happen in each of our lives Mm. day to day. And I really want to take a look at what that's all about in part three. So everybody knows that Mary's the mother of Jesus. We've heard about the angel comes and, and tells her, and she says, let it be to me according to your word, and Jesus is born, he's in a manger. But that's not the end of it. You don't just have a baby and that's the end of the task. You have to put a lot of work in taking care of the baby, making sure the baby's feeding well, wake up with the baby in the night, is the baby warm enough? All this stuff, there's a huge amount of effort, ongoing sustained effort that, that Mary had to put in. And I don't know, it doesn't say if Joseph was hands-on or not, but the parents have got to do a lot to make this baby survive and thrive. And if we're saying that this is a picture of our own relationship with God's birth into our heart and mind, we, we can't just have the, the baby comes and, then, and we leave it alone. We have to be caring for this new presence, you know, all the time. And Swedenborg talks about this in True Christianity 766. He says, The Lord is present with each and every human being. He exerts insistent pressure on us to receive him which we'll get to in a little bit, is a very labor-like imagery. When we do receive Him, which occurs when we acknowledge Him as our own God, Creator, Redeemer, and Savior, a lot of of things to acknowledge there, His first coming occurs in us, which is the twilight before dawn. From then on, we begin to be enlightened intellectually in spiritual matters and to grow into deeper and deeper wisdom. As we receive this wisdom from the Lord, we move through the morning into midday. So we're using a lot of correspondential imagery. The day continues into our old age until we die. Then we come to the Lord himself in heaven. 
There, although we died old, we are brought back into the morning of our lives, and the rudiments of wisdom that were planted in us while we were in the physical world grow and thrive to eternity. That's so exciting to me, the idea that you get these things in place that then just have no limit to what they can be. And we're thinking about God exerting this pressure on us, like, come on, I, I, it's time for me to come. And if you think about Mary being pregnant, that, yeah, you're, you're going along and you're pregnant, but there's a certain point at which it's going to happen, and, and, and you can't even stop it. So when we're first deciding to pursue this relationship with God, it can be more difficult to see God's presence, just like when, when the baby's still in the womb. But the Lord wants to get closer and bless us more and more. So there's this urgency, like, let's take the next step. I, I can't grow in this womb anymore to grow. I got to be out there. So when we get ready to take that next step, we begin to start to recognize a small presence of the Lord's love and action in our lives. But if that presence is going to thrive, that's not the end of the story. Again, we have to notice it, give it attention, f- find out what it needs for nourishment and, and nourish it. And as we recognize and nurture the Lord's presence, we're going to be able to feel actually a love for the Lord, not just what, who, who is this baby that's in my life, but I, I, I really love this baby. I know this baby because our relationship is getting more real. And you think as a baby starts to develop, it goes from just something that needs care for everything and is sweet and, and fun in its own way to now we're making eye contact. And now as the baby turns into more of a toddler, we're starting to have like proto-conversations and conversations, we're reading books together. It's beginning to be like a person-to-person. You're starting to really know this, this baby's personality. So just like that, the interaction with the Lord will get more tangible. We'll be able to recognize who, who God is with us, you know, as as it grows and as we begin to really develop into the a little family. So this process really is analogous to labor and and birth. The birth and growth of a two-way relationship with God is really what regeneration is. We did a show about the process of regeneration that Swedenborg mentions as fundamental to our purpose uh, on earth here, and this is us developing this relationship with God. And so Mary consented to giving birth to Jesus, but not only that, to taking care of him. So how do we do the same thing? How do we be as as willing and as, as active a participant as she was? It has to do with True Christianity 96. Swedenborg says, The Lord does come into every one of us, bringing his love and wisdom, but unless we are following the divine design in our lives, that life, although it may indeed be in us, makes no contribution whatever to our salvation. So it doesn't, it's not able to steer us to where we need to go. It gives us only the ability to understand what is true and do what is good. Following the divine design in the way we live, yeah, how do you follow something as complex as the divine design is following God's commandments. So this would be things, don't kill, don't steal, those sorts of things. When we live and function in this way, then we acquire justice for ourselves. But we do not gain the justice of the Lord's redemption, we gain the Lord himself as justice. Wait a second. That's like, really? Justice? I thought we'd gain the Lord as love, or, or gain the Lord as a good friend. What is gain the Lord as justice? That's like, that's what I got for Christmas? But there's, as, as it usually happens, there's a little, there's a, a different meaning to the term justice, and I don't know what it is, but we have a, just happen to have a Latin expert here to enlighten us on what does Swedenborg mean when he says we gain the Lord as justice? We've seen before that Swedenborg can sometimes have a different take on a particular word or concept than what we're used to. An example of that is the word justice. 
And here's a little passage from Heaven and Hell that illuminates his view. The form of government in the Lord's heavenly kingdom is called justice. Since all the people there are intent on the good the Lord's love does in us and through us. And anything that results from this good is called just. So anything that comes from the goodness of the Lord's love is called just or justice. That's a different lineup than I have in my mind. I align, I align justice with the judicial system, the truth, the facts, what's right. But Swedenborg, in his sort of grand dualism, lines up justice on the love side. You know, he has love and wisdom, good and truth, charity and faith. He often pairs justice with judgment. And when he does that, judgment is the truth part. And justice is the form of love. So anything coming out of the Lord's goodness, like that is definitely something you could cuddle up with. This, this is something personal and personable that's, that's coming out of God, and that's what we gain, these effects of goodness in our lives. He goes on to say, we acquire justice the more we practice it. We practice justice the more our interaction with our neighbor is motivated by a love for justice and truth. It all comes down in the end. This relationship with God is built through our love towards other people. And so we welcome this partnership with the Lord into our lives by putting this justice into action in our lives and our interactions with our fellow human beings. So that's such an interesting definition of justice. It is kind of different than the way that... I think I and others have sort of thought about it. Uh, but it's such a cool idea that as you put that into effect in your life, and it's not something you do perfectly the first time or the second time, but you're trying to practice that form of justice and love in your life, that gradually you develop this partnership, this relationship with the Lord yeah. over time. It really is. And that's what's depicted right there in the story. That's cool. It's cool. And it's this incremental process, just like learning and retaining all these details about the Christmas story is an incremental process is to help us along with that. Let's get a recap. And, and, and because it's meant to be a story, just like the, the being born was no accident, this being told through a story is no accident. Mm. So we thought we would do the wrap-up in story form. So we were going to hear the story told as we've just been hearing it, along with all these parts of the internal sense, so we get a sense of the progression and what it means. So here's a recap of what we learned. For the Lord to be born into our lives, our ability to have a relationship with God has to be open, humble, and willing to make the necessary effort. In that state of willingness, the Lord's genuine presence and love can begin to grow. It will be hard to see at first, and a mindset that feels no need for a genuine relationship with God will have no room for such a thing. But a humble mindset, one that yearns for deeper spiritual nourishment, will have room. When this place in the heart and mind are found, the Lord's own yearning to truly connect with us will grow stronger, pressing to come to our conscious awareness. And then, the presence of the Lord's underlying love can be born into our conscious awareness. We can recognize it. We can feed it. We can be stirred with affection for it. This new presence will be small at first, 
The beginnings of a genuine relationship with the Lord will need nurturing and attention in order to grow. We'll need to wrap this tender new presence of love in protective concepts, letting that love fill our ideas and beliefs with new life. Our desire to do good and to serve others will eagerly seek this presence of divine love. It is the Lord within us who will bring the power to resist negativity and to serve others and spread kindness. With our willing care and attention, our relationship and partnership with the Lord will grow, bringing increasing awareness and joy. So it's really cool to me that not only do you have that whole humble journey of the Lord being born as a little baby and growing up and everything, and how that affirms the process that we all go through, that this is a more orderly process than we realize, just being born in this world, just getting older and learning things and stuff like that, but also that the details of that Christmas story have all this hidden meaning within them about how we buy in, what do we need to do to get the benefit out of that. Right. that, that that's really cool. And that is the story of the story of why God was born as a little baby. I hope you all enjoyed it. We're going to get to one of your questions in a moment here, but first, a couple of thank yous. Thanks so much, everyone, for watching. If you could just do us a favor, like and subscribe, that helps us get out there into YouTube. And if you want to be a part of the engine that makes this go, consider hanging out with us on Patreon. Just donating a dollar per show will help make us able to do it, and we'll give you a little thank you in the form of behind-the-scenes content. If you couldn't get enough of those awesome nativities that we filmed for this episode, we actually have a behind-the-scenes of Chelsea interviewing somebody who curates the exhibits that all those came from. You'll learn a little more about just what went into all that, and it's it's well worth a look. And while we're on that subject, we want to thank Glencairn Museum. Check them out. They they were the ones who gave us access to all those. These are really creches, as they're called, from around the world, showing the way this story has been interpreted by all these different cultures. Pretty cool. Check it out if you're in the Philadelphia area. So, guys, that's our show, and we want to end it with a question from you. This is from our show, Spiritual Questions Answered, number 10. The Bhagavad says, Why did God come in the form of Jesus and create a new heaven? Why didn't the saved people get to go into the celestial heaven directly after Jesus' resurrection? Because when Swedenborg mm. is describing heaven, he gives you all these different areas and compartments. Why I see this question is, why that complexity? Why don't we all just go somewhere and everybody gets to go to the best Place. Right. Why do you have levels of heaven, and why was it evolving over time? Yeah. So that you had, uh, the way Swedenborg describes it, you had this celestial heaven that formed first, and then what was below that was kind of amorphous for a while, and then when the Lord was in the world, that got kind of shaped into the spiritual heaven, and then there was another one of those that's, that's happened more recently, even a lower heaven in there. And uh, it's a complex question. I think it's possible for people at any time to go to these different levels of heaven. Like he talks about the fact that all little children who pass on, which is, is too terribly sad, but they go to that highest heaven, you know, and there's just yeah. a lot of them, up, you know, it's a huge part of the population up there. And so that didn't stop after the Lord came into the world. 
but the idea that I get is basically sort of sad, but the human race is sort of moving away from the Lord, uh, becoming more and more distant over time, but also evolving into different types of minds, a different approach. They're interested in, you know, like technology and different kinds of thinking come along later on. And so the people aren't quite as compatible or whatever. And yeah. so the Lord forms a different heaven out of that mindset. It's not that people are blocked from going to the other one, but I really see it as the divine mercy saying, okay, you don't like this heaven? Sure, I'll make you a new one You know, uh, that that's a little farther away and still has all this good stuff in it or, or something like that. Uh, so I imagine people have the option, but the way Swedenborg describes it, to go to whichever heaven, but the way he describes it, it's so much about are you open at the level of your heart or is it just your mind or is it just your actions and obedience kind of thing? And that's pretty much a decision that we make during the course of our lives, and we don't kind of change that afterwards. So it's so different that going from one he- one heaven is so different from another heaven, that going from one to another, the angels lose their wisdom and they stammer or they can't breathe or they can't see anything, you know. Uh, so yeah. you're really, there's a, a sense of home in a particular level of heaven. So the Lord made a new home for people of a kind of a different nature who are thinking about things in a different way. So I, I see the divine love in it. I, how, how am I doing? No, that's that's great. I'll, I'll give you an A on that. Okay. And oh, that's kind. haven't we just done this whole show about the divine design and that one of the mm. hallmarks of Swedenborg's description of God and description of afterlife and everything spiritual is that it's structured and it's ordered and it's not just like you'd think the most perfect would be there's just one heaven that everybody got lumped into that would be the best but Swedenborg asserts that something Mm. is actually more perfect when it's a variety of parts that are different working together in harmony if you look at the human body Right, which he says is a map of heaven. That's right. It's not just a blob. It's got if it just was one type of cell, <laughs> it would be able to accomplish so much less than it can be accomplished. So I'm thinking it's that same divine chest that somehow God is setting up these different heavens and what initially looks like this is a uh, best. Okay, we'll we'll give you this because in the end, doesn't he got to be pulling that in some direction that we're going to make some better, more complete heaven as well? So I would think that. It's the same divine design driving these heavens and God just knowing exactly who needs to be where mm. and why and when, as is driving God to, you'd think, God, just go, don't be a baby, just be a God and tell everyone exactly what to do, and we wouldn't have to have hour-long YouTube shows trying to explain what <laughs> what God does, you know, like it's the right. same thing. So. Right, yeah. right. It's it's very interesting to, to think of that... Um, uh, accommodation. It is about the free will and the response of people. And I really think he kind of, in a way, lowers the bar to where, oh, okay, no, that's good. You're a good person. That's that's good. That That's good enough to get you, you know, uh, that's good enough to get you in. And then structures it in such a way that there's communication between these different heavens, and they all play a different role, as you were saying, like the organs in the body. So, it's amazing to think that that development is in some subtle ways going on every day, that heaven is getting better and evolving. And a lot of people, just from this planet, 55 million people a year pouring in. And, and so that development is is ongoing. It's not a static kind of 
heaven and it's, and the people who are there as we've talked about in an earlier show aren't just sort of playing harps and sitting on a cloud and nothing to do all day you know there's a lot of development going on and when you're part of a community that's enlarging all the time you got new responsibilities oh now we expand this function and we need more people to do that and and all that so it's constantly growing <clears throat> yeah it's the divine order like right now you were saying that and i did this cough thing you know that I can't like talk. It's like why why do I have this complex body that does work and doesn't work sometimes? And because I was like I don't want to lose this take. This is good, but it's all like the, the question of why did I cough right then and why am I like working my way back is the same question as why the heavens go like they do. Why is God born as a baby? And I think that you're right. It's for like the betterment of everyone. So it's, it's essentially mysterious and we'll never get to the bottom of everything about it. Uh, but that there's love creating a home. I see in the New Testament that that Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah. Not a place for just like ah for you know, like people. Yeah, you know. Right, right. No, it's you. Like there's a place for you. It it's individualized and personalized. That's a good note. Let's end on that one. Uh, there, there's a heaven waiting out there for you. That's and right. You've helped us uh, have a little bit of heaven here today by getting to talk over this stuff. Thank you so much, and we'll see you around. Okay, wait. We were about to go to the next, to the ending part, but we had a thought that we just had to get out here. So, Jonathan. Well, the thought was that uh, I remember seeing something in Swedenborg's Revelation Explained or Apocalypse Explained, where he talks about the fact that when Jesus came into the world, the existing heavens got a huge upgrade. So it wasn't just like he created a new heaven and all his attention is going to the new heaven and now the old heaven is like, oh, I don't really think about that much anymore. Uh, when it says in Isaiah 30, I think it is, that the the light of the sun will be like the light of seven suns, like the light of seven days, and the moon will be like the sun. Uh, that's about an upgrade that these heavens got to where things got so much better and brighter and more awesome and everything. So uh, that it wasn't that anybody got left behind by this process. The Lord's mercy is lifting the whole thing up. And that made me think maybe that's still going on. Yeah, so heaven is a whole benefit. It's not just like, oh, you put all this new this new money into the new heaven, but <laughs> right. here our house is at... No, just, yes, right. every, everybody, everybody got, got the a boost upgrade. from that. That's right. right. So there's our extra thought, and uh, that's our show. All right, that's our show. Hey, this is actually our last program of 2017, and I just want to say on behalf of myself and the whole team, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a, it's been a total joy, and that's, that's understating it, to get to walk through these concepts with all of you and think about them, try to apply them to life, try to make life better, and we ain't going nowhere. We're going to be trying to do that with back with a vengeance in 2018 as we look to continue to spread as much love and wisdom as we possibly can. So yeah, that Christmas... Uh, Monday, we won't have a show. We won't have one after that. We'll be back, though, at the beginning of the new year, uh, January 8th, and we'll actually be doing a series of live Swedenborgian Life shows to kick it off. We'll have some details to follow before then, but I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, and I can't wait to see you again in 2018. Swedenborgian Life is Amy Aquarola, Morgan Beard, Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Matthew Childs, Alexa Cole, John Connolly, Cara Dom, Chris Dunn, Stuart Farmer, Ben Keyes, Reed McArdle, Chelsea Odner, Jonathan Rose, Shiloh Silverman, and Shada Sullivan.